Hey everybody, you're listening to Beyond the Scrum. This is Mark Carrig. I'm one of the hosts. I'm a senior writer at The Athletic. I'm with Andy McCullough, also a senior writer at The Athletic. What's up, Andy? Hi, Mark. And we have a guest. Uh, he is our Texas Rangers beat writer, also a former musician. It's Levi Weaver. What's up, Levi? Hey, just what everybody wants is to hear some news about the Texas Rangers right now, the most interesting team in baseball. We're a Texas Rangers podcast. Um, <laughs> Pretty much. We had John Daniels on last week. Nice. We're trying very hard to get Colby Lewis next week. Oh, Colby's um, a trip. Actually, we should try and get Wash on the show. Anyway. We had Wash on ours. So our, our Rangers podcast, Welcome to the Hit Show, uh, we had him a few weeks ago. It, outstanding. If you can get him, he's great. Yeah. He's uh, very he's energetic. Best. I was ready to go outside and just start like hucking baseballs at a wall. So he's, yeah. he's good. <laughs> when you have a conversation with Watch, you see immediately why players like playing for him. He is Absolutely. just tremendous. Yeah. Was he was he ripping a heater? Could you tell? Like I as he was tell. talking to you guys? <laughs> no. There was no there was no obvious like pause in the middle of a sentence, which probably just means that he's a professional uh, and was like sneakily doing it where we couldn't hear. Oh, he's yeah. he's he's up there, like him and Jim Leland, like as far yeah. as that. But like Wash didn't even try to hide it, which is my favorite part. Like, no, there was a scandal um, one year. This must have been twenty, gosh, maybe eleven or twelve, like at the height of the Rangers' success. And uh, I was watching a game on TV, and they cut to the dugout, and there's Wash just sort of like standing right at the mouth of where the <laughs> tunnel comes out of the right, just full on smoking a cigarette <laughs> and the camera tried to cut away really quickly, but you could tell they just accidentally, like they just realized what they were seeing. They're like, oh, no, oh, dude, cut, cut, cut. Uh, but it, yeah, everybody was, you know, screen capping it and putting it on Twitter. It was amazing. Oh, it's so great. Like I went into wash was with, uh, with the Rangers are visiting the Yankees and I'm writing a story about Eric Chavez. who's playing for the Yankees at the time. And so uh-huh. wash has me in his office at Yankee stadium and he pulls out a merit uh, starts puffing one, offers me one. I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so yeah. here's like me and Wash smoking heaters at Yankee Stadium uh, at work. It was like, this oh is crazy. Um, was that even still well, legal to smoke inside in New York at that time? No, no, no. <laughs> Clearly not. Clearly oh. not. That was the best part. And like, anyway, I, I could tell more stories about Wash and heaters, but. Um, like I wanted to touch on something first before we, uh, you know, go Spe- further. Speaking here. of heaters, yes, yeah, players <laughs> are going to be getting back to smoking cigarettes, and they want their tobacco fixed. <laughs> yes, Andy, why don't you go ahead and explain that oh, transition man. a little more? Because that's kind of dead on. Well, it's. I mean, it's we're joking, obviously. <laughs> but so, Major League Baseball uh, last week, as uh, our Ken Rosenthal and his uh, sidekick Evan Drellick reported, uh, <laughs> there's a 67-page document uh, that kind of laid out Major League Baseball's health and safety protocols for the 2020 season. And there's a lot of. Uh, it's a pretty, you know, extensive document. There's a lot of provisions in there, and it, you know, governs everything from how to do spring training. Uh, how to social distance at the ballpark, what behaviors are going to be discouraged. And, you know, one of them, of out of many, is uh, sort of a ban on chewing tobacco, which is they've had a soft ban for a while on chewing tobacco. Um, but this is going to be, I think, maybe probably more uh, harshly enforced. And so it's just one of, you know, I don't know, hundreds of uh, changes that are going to be necessary in the eyes of Major League Baseball in order to play uh, baseball this season. And so um, Karig and I were able to uh, send the report along to, uh, we talked to six different uh, epidemiologists mm-hmm. and infectious disease experts, just kind of what their take takes on the document were. And so we've got some interesting feedback, wouldn't you say, Mark? Yeah, we did. I, I, I mean, I don't know, the, the folks I talked to, the, the first points I heard, and I, and I feel like I would agree with this, it is a thorough document. They, they took yeah. a lot of time and effort and energy, and it's clear that uh, I, I think they're trying to do the right thing as far as like this, you know, within its context, right? Like, so they, they've covered a lot of ground and that's good. But, and I don't know if this is the impression you got right away, but like, as I talked to these folks, it, it just made it even clearer to me uh, how many needles have to be thread through holes to like make this thing work. Like it's, it's almost staggering the order and, and the effectiveness that these measures have to be taken in. Uh, uh, to be done uh, to, to pull this off. Uh, it, it just seems overwhelming. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, I, I can only speak for myself, but I think it's kind of challenging to play baseball in the midst of a pandemic involving a deadly, highly contagious virus. Um, I mean, it's, you know, this has been staring us in the face for several months that this is not going to be easy. And, you know, the document kind of lays out just how challenging it's going to be. And even then, it doesn't necessarily go far enough. I mean, I think the the lack of daily testing uh, is something that, you know, is going to be a bit of a sticking point, I think, moving forward. And there's just a lot of, you know, small details that kind of uh, make a huge difference because small details are really, really important when you're trying to prevent, you know, flare-ups of this virus. Yeah, I, I think the small details point really, I think, is a good one. I, I mean, we, one of the conversations I had was was focused about uh, you know cotton swabs. And yeah. I've never thought more about cotton swabs <laughs> in my life, yeah. but but in this context, okay. So here's a great example of what you're talking about, there, Andy. You know, they're not even sure how long a sample can you know not degrade on a cotton swab. Right. You know, and 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 whether that impacts the accuracy of the test. Like those tests apparently uh, are in their infancy still. And so when you look at this document, 67 pages, I feel like on page two is a whole thing about how most of the testing that they would have is saliva and using swabs. And then now you've got experts going, well, not quite sure if those are going to be totally accurate by June. So that is one example, I think, of, yes, they were prepared and and they've got these ideas, but then there's also that real-world aspect of, hey, there's still a lot of unknown. So anyway, that that was my takeaway from it. Anyhow. Yeah. um, Levi, what has it been like from your perspective? Sorry. Yeah, no, go for it. I was just going to say that it's amazing to me that for so much of human history, we would have, you know, something like this would come up and we're like, okay, well, this is a two-year process minimum. Um, sometimes longer than that. And, and now we're like, ah, this thing has been around for like three months already. How do we not have it completely solved already? What is going on? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when you watch, you know, 28 days later, the thing that doesn't fell the world is a lack of Q-tips. Uh, it's a slightly different, you know, existence we're dealing with here. Yeah. Um, Levo, just what is it? What has it been like from your perspective? I guess, like you know, just talking to folks around the Rangers, you know, how they're just kind of preparing for this. I mean, you know, is there optimism about you know getting the season off the ground? Or I mean, what what are you kind of hearing? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's it's funny you should choose the word optimism. That's exactly the word that John Daniels used. We had a Zoom call earlier this week, and he he said, I think this is an exact quote, I'm optimistic that we will play in 2020. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there is, uh, it does seem that, like, what I've heard not just from around the, the Rangers, but also just from around the league is that it kind of tends to be a little split among the players. So... Guys who have been around for, you know, a long time, they've made their paychecks, they have the ability to be a bit more careful um, and go, yeah. look, it's just not worth the $3.6 million or whatever that I was going to make this year to put my life in danger. And it's not worth it to put anybody's life in danger. And we've got, you know, my wife and kids and my parents and like, let's just, it really needs to be exactly right before I before the risk is worth it. And then you've got the other guys that are like, yeah, so I made $6,000 last year and I might not make any money this year and good luck getting a job with, you know, 40 million people unemployed. So if we could play baseball, that would be really great. Um, Mm -hmm. That's kind of seems to be where it, where the, the division comes. And, um, and then of course the, the division about money and that's a whole other can of worms that we could get into. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think the general consensus among the players and among you know, front office people and coaches and, and for that matter, matter, the media is really hope we get baseball this year. Would love to have baseball. All of us kind of are depending on there being baseball for our livelihoods. Um, but then, I mean, it's like you guys said, like we, we don't even know the the efficacy of, of cotton swabs. So if we can't figure that out, like everybody going, you know, as long as it's safe and and that clause, as long as it's safe is doing a lot of work and there's a whole lot of complicated subtext to that clause. So it's, I, I, 
I don't know. Uh, that, uh, this is a this is a sentence I find myself saying a lot, uh, exactly like I just said it. Stutter, stutter, stutter. I don't know. Sigh. And <laughs> and that's where I am. On the whole thing, so. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. That's uh, yeah. That fits it. That sums it up pretty well. I'd say. Yeah. I... Well, let's move on because, again, what a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to, you know, like, like yeah. I mean, seriously, there's, it, uh, I know. There, there's something I know. That, that Levi, uh, you mentioned that there's a, a phrase you just used, like, these guys are potentially, like, putting life in danger. And, and even a statement like that becomes, yeah. like, somehow controversial. And it, it really annoys me. Uh, like, the dialogue yeah. about this is, like, almost <clears throat> impossible just because I feel like people have become entrenched in whatever they think. And, and by the way, 67 pages in that document. Yeah. And loss of life does not appear. Neither does the word death. Okay? And, and, that, and, and this is even with a part devoted strictly to high-risk individuals and acknowledgement that players, might, they may not be that group, but they're going to be around folks who are. Yeah. And so still we don't see those things, which, I mean, look, it's a draft. It's a, it's a living document. And, and so uh, but I, it, I did find it funny that the word authenticator was in there more than <clears throat> the word death or the phrase loss of life, which I think says something about how some of these things have become framed. Yeah. Uh, Good job just, moving on, Mark. Yes, I, I did not move on. I am sorry. But, no, let's move on for real For 45 time. minutes later, Kareem's yeah. just screaming about nasal swabs and, you know. <laughs> Just getting madder and madder. Levi, how have yeah. you been, man? Like, what, what's, uh-huh. what's been the, the last, you know, month, two, whatever, been for you? Uh, well, there's a, there's a photo that I sent to some friends that was uh, – it, it was, you know, you can do those things where you put three photos in one and, uh, it is the, the it, this is me over the course of four days. Um, I had like Eminem blonde hair. Uh, then I had like Sonic the Hedgehog blue hair and then I had no hair. And that was like a four day process early on in this. <laughs> so I'm doing great. Things are going really well for me. I like it. I like it. Um, yeah. Like, no, I mean, I, I've kind of settled into like this being normal for a while. Like the early, the early coping mechanism was just like, let's grab a drink and just chill out and hope this goes away soon. Even though I knew it wouldn't, it was like, maybe I can just ride this thing out. And then eventually realizing like, well, I can't live my life like this. I've got to be effective. I've got to, you know, be present, even though present is, uh, really scary right now. So I, I am, I do feel like I'm doing better now than I did for the first probably month and a half. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's weird. I think for everybody, we've got two kids and they're finishing up school and I'm, you know, Heather, my wife is working a full-time job still from home and I'm working where I can from home. And, and, um, we're really lucky, honestly, all things considered, like we have the ability to stay home most of the time. And yeah, that drives us nuts. Um, but, but we, that's a privilege really. So I feel, I feel super lucky to be like my, this is bad is not nearly as bad as a whole lot of people's. This is bad. So. Right. 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 Makes sense. Well, I, so first of all, like, so glad you're here. And, and, and one of the things that Andy and I have been talking about as we have people on is like, Hey, just get interesting people on here. And, you know, your story is one of the most interesting ones on our whole staff, in my opinion. Um, uh, and which part are we talking about? Know, the are we talking about the rodeos or the <laughs> or the or the part? living living or living in the RV? Um, living in the RV. But, there's that. There's, uh, I lived in England for a couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. I ran for my life in Istanbul once. These are all things, honestly, so, like having an interesting life either means you're insanely rich and have had that from an early age, or it means you're an idiot who makes bad decisions and then you have to figure out a way to get out of them. And I am firmly in the latter camp. I have just made a series of terrible decisions that have worked out for me. So, <laughs> and 
Yeah. yeah, like I guess I'll let's start it with just like I'll distill it to one thing. Why the okay. hell did you choose baseball writing? Why? <laughs> why are you doing? Why are you doing this? I needed to be in a stable industry, Mark. That's why I did this. That that does not answer the question. Uh, actually, that begs a lot more questions. Uh, okay, so uh, the I'll I'll try to make this answer as short as I can. I've been a baseball fan since I was a kid. Uh, I actually thought I was going to be a baseball play-by-play announcer when I was in college, just because um, you know guidance counselors in high school are like you have to pick something. Like you can't just be nothing for your whole life. You you know you got good grades. You can be kind of whatever you want to be. Pick something. I'm like, yeah, baseball announcer. So went to college for a couple years uh, and hated that and quit. But I was doing music and, you know, I kept up with baseball most of my life with with the exception of when I was in England. I didn't really have, you know, I get to watch one baseball game a week. And um, so the the years 2004 to 06 are kind of a black hole to me. I don't really know much about baseball in that era. Um was doing music, I was a touring musician, singer-songwriter, sort of driving myself around the country. And um, and then in 2014, I convinced my wife to move into an RV with me and drive around the country playing shows, which we did. Um, we kind of kind of broke even almost, which was great, but we couldn't do it forever. And so in 2015, um, I'm skipping a lot of details here, we ended up back in Texas where we both grew up. Um, and I thought that the next step for me was to just like write the next album and kind of start the process over again. And then I didn't, uh, couldn't figure out a way to write songs anymore. And it was just done. Like I, whatever magic had been there, I had, I had spent it all. And, um, so I spent 2015, like getting super weird. Like I planted a garden uh, grew my hair out to my shoulders, uh, bought a, a weird like beach hat that I wore most of the time and, um, tried to figure out what was next in life. And, uh, while I was doing that, I had an offer to just sort of freelance some baseball blogging things for the local ABC affiliate, which I did, um, just as a way to have some creative outlet. Like I needed to be creating something and, I like baseball and the Rangers were the team I'd followed since I was a kid. So sure, let's, you know, let's do write some things about baseball. And they were all patently terrible uh, by baseball writing standards, but by blogging standards, I guess they were okay. And uh, honestly, credit to um, Or Moyle, who is our managing editor in Dallas now. He was actually at WFAA at the time. And when the girl that was doing the full-time gig, she was like a, it, it was weird. It was like a, position of beat writer but it's for a tv station and we're writing for the the station site she moved to guam to work for a newspaper and um i still couldn't write a song and so i just i talked to or like hey man i think uh i think maybe i want to write about baseball like this is kind of all i got right now and he was excited he thought that i wrote about baseball in a way that nobody else did which again (laughs) was not because of in my opinion talent it was because of a lack of knowing what i was doing at all Um, and so he took a risk and hired me and that was, I did that for two years. Um, WFAA wisely would not give me a full-time job with benefits, but we needed like, you know, health insurance because we had kids. And so I quit. I started my own website. Uh, that was a subscription site. It was called the upset and it existed for two months before the athletic came in and, uh, basically just said, you don't really want to exist, do you? Let's just have you write for us instead. And so they took it, our uh, our entire staff, <laughs> and we all got hired to write for The Athletic. And here I am now. So that was, uh, again, basically like a series of bad decisions, and someone bailed me out. And that someone in this case was Ormoyle, and then in turn, uh, Bob Sturm and The Athletic. When, uh, when you said you couldn't write a song, do you mean that you couldn't write a song you were happy with, or you could not? put words to paper both interns like there would be weeks where i just couldn't do anything and then there would be times mm-hmm. that i would try to force it and it would all just come out this like weird anger like i remember being you know 21 and knowing everything about the world and seeing these like you know i was a singer songwriter so i would get paired with 
sometimes I would get paired with like these guys in their fifties that were these old like hippie singer songwriters and they were writing mm-hmm. about you know, peace, love, and politics. And I just remember going like, I will never, I will never, ever write like a political record, which is funny because I like have an entire new, you know, my old music channel now is where I dump all of my political rantings. But I just, I won't do that. <laughs> like, I will not write this, uh, yeah. this anthem about, you know, fascism. And when I would sit to write down, like sit down to write, I was, I'm like writing about like Glenn Beck. <laughs> like this sucks. This is a terrible song. If you have these, this is not where these opinions go. Um, I, so yeah, I just, I couldn't write anything I was happy with. It was all bad. Well, there is that, there is that challenge of trying to make, um, you know, I don't know for a protest songs is probably a pretty lame way to describe it, but just sort of a, a political statement, you know, not seem fairly cheesy. And uh, this right. isn't, this isn't an original point, but it's the sort of thing like when you listen to rage against the machine, when you're 12 years old, you're like, mm-hmm. yeah, man. Yeah. And then when you listen, when you're 22, you're like, wow, this is pretty embarrassing. And then when you listen, when you're 32, you're like, you know, they don't, have to burn the books. They do just remove them. Like it yeah. kind of boomerangs around and yeah, it, it some, has sort of a, another resonance, I guess. Are in fact burning <laughs> crosses. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So and and there's but there I imagine there's a challenge of just putting that down and not feeling like, man, this is gonna sound so lame if I say this out loud. Yeah. And it wasn't even about it sounding lame. Like that's where I that was uh, yeah, that was part of it. That was part of it was that it sounded like I was not writing with my my voice that I was used to this sort of self reflective, introspective, sad, uh, sad songs, which is how I basically describe my music. What kind of music do you play? Sad. Um, (laughs) but I was, and, and that's not to say that there couldn't be a song written from the perspective of me looking into it and like that whole awakening. Like I'm sure that such a song could have existed, but, um, I just couldn't find it. And, and so, um, So yeah, it was, I think in retrospect, the reason I guess that I'm glad that I didn't power through and try to do it is less because it would have been cheesy and embarrassing and more just because there are, there are other voices that are, um, that, that are more eloquent with that, that, that I should just, if anybody wants to hear me write a song about it, I can just point them towards, um, some other people. So. You know, I, I was in pre- preparing for this. I, I found that Levi's got an actual Wikipedia page that isn't, you know, done by like somebody's cousin, like a sports writer would have, like of two paragraphs. Like there was like a bunch of stuff on there, and and there was a note at the bottom. That at, it sounds like you sent an email to people that were following you, like on a list, to basically yeah. say you were done being a musician, and. Yeah. I, that really struck me, like, because like musician isn't something that I look at like you just put on like a hat and take off. Like mm-hmm. th- this is something that is clearly you're passionate about, and you've given your reason for why that came to be. But when I read that, I was like, are, does that mean you close the door on it, or do you think it's ever possible that at some point maybe that ghost or whatever you used to describe that kind of pushes you there uh, as a songwriter does that person that thing ever come back like wh- what do you think like is this is it over or is it just the pause button thing for you you know i actually have a better answer for that now than i would have a year ago um i actually did a show in january i like agreed to finally because i couldn't remember what my last show was after we got to texas i did some like little bar gigs or whatever and um and to, sorry, Doug Brocale is literally calling me right now. Uh, he has not returned my text in like six months and he's choosing now to call me. Um, I will have to call him later. Um, what an existence. So <laughs> what, what a stupid life we live. I know. Anyway. <laughs> it's so dumb. Uh, I that completely threw me off because I like did not expect to see that name. Um, where was I? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I couldn't remember my last show. A buddy of mine convinced me to do a last show. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> this is surreal, isn't it? So um, so I did. I was like, I'll do it, but it has to be a fundraiser for Refugee Services of Texas. And so we we did a show in January, and I, like, took the off-season and prepared. I, like, pulled out all my old loop pedals and my, like, multiple microphones and violin bow that I'd use on my guitar. And, like, just it's all dumb and and I did it like I got my voice back in shape and and I did a, a set and honestly like my whole goal 
was to not embarrass myself. And and I, I think I did okay. Like people that came that it was weird. It was this weird double pressure of like, okay, there are people that know me for music and they're going to expect me to be as good as I was when I was touring. I'm going to let them down. And then there are people that know me from baseball and I've sort of played this like, oh, shucks, when I make a mistake with baseball, forgive me, I'm just a lowly musician trying to play the part of baseball writer. Uh, They're going to see that I'm a fraud and this is going to suck. And then then there was like the third added one, which I was not expecting, which is like my son who remembered, he was in kindergarten my last year. So he remembers and he's like excited. He's like telling his friends like, it's an all ages show, you should come and see my dad do a show. And I'm like, okay, he's 11 now. His friends are just getting to the age where they like say the most horrible crap to each other with no (laughs) filters whatsoever. Like, great. Now I'm trying not to like dishonor my family. Um, So it was, and it was fine. I didn't, if anybody had anything bad to say, they didn't say it to me. Um, But what I did not expect was in the aftermath of that to just feel this sort of release of like, I, I wondered if the bug would be back or if I'd want to keep doing it. And honestly, like I, the performance was a lot of fun. I, I really, I enjoyed performing. Like I really loved it. That was the crux of what I did. The, the, the I loved being on stage and like playing songs, but I also loved the in-between part where I like see if I could get the crowd on my side. And like, if it was a crowd full of people that didn't know me, could I win the crowd over? Or if it's a crowd of people that did know me, could I make this performance different enough that it's not boring to them because they've seen me before? And like, that was a lot of fun for me. It was like, like, I get why people do improv comedy, uh, cringy as improv often is. Like, I get it. It's you're walking a tight wire. And um, and I enjoyed it in January when I was when I was doing it. But then there was this part of me when it was done and I'd shaken all the hands and I'd sold whatever merch had been shoved into a storage space for five years or whatever. Um, going home and like to my house and not like, okay, now we get to drive six hours through the night and sleep in a McDonald's parking lot and do it all again tomorrow. Uh, like the ability to go home to my bed and sleep and wake up and like cook breakfast in my own kitchen the next day. And that makes me old and lame and it sucks, but I am old and I am lame and I do suck. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, it was, How, I, I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't want to go back. No, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> That's cool. How, uh, so one of the things that, you know, baseball writers take pride in is the, uh, theoretical, uh, ruggedness of the schedule, you know, uh, 162 games and, you know, you got to travel. Sometimes you got to stay in the courtyard. Uh, you know, sometimes you got to take a flight at 6am. Uh, I drove a 93 uh, Honda Accord around the country for years. (laughs) And then when that completely died, I had like a Honda CRV that I drove around the country for years. And I, how, how bad is it? I mean, like, I, I'm curious, like, because it's it's the romantic aspect, right? For people who love music, is like they think about bands on the road. Like, what what is that? I know it's there, a big question, but like, what is that experience a, like? There was an article in the, I think it may have been the LA Times actually, or the some some LA paper about this band like roughing it, and oh, it's so hard for them, and they're playing a hundred shows a year in their Sprinter van. And like everybody that I know is just relentlessly ripping it. Like, are you kidding me? Like we've literally slept on couches for like a decade of our life. We've like eaten, like I know people that literally will like eat out of dumpsters. Like it, it, and it's not that bad for everybody. But like for me, I did a lot of house shows. So like I'm literally sleeping on Mm -hmm. people's couches. Uh, I am driving a Honda CRV around the country and it's like taped up. I had it impounded once because I didn't get it registered and because I had Texas plates on it, there was a cop from Massachusetts that was certain that I was like hauling drugs. And sure. I was like the only touring musician that didn't have any drugs on me at all ever. And so they were like, <laughs> so they were like tossing the guy. Like, he was such a jerk. He was like, like convinced I had drugs and trying to get me to start a fight with him for some reason. And like, I'm over here just like making the, the like what face. And uh, he's like, oh, okay, okay. Well, if you if you don't have anything in your car, then uh, you might if I search it. And this is like the sauciest I've ever been to a law enforcement officer. So here's here's what a tough guy I am. I'm like, sir, uh, if you had been polite throughout this entire interaction, then um, then I would have no problem with you searching my car. But but 
frankly, you've been aggressive and rude. So um, no, I, I do not give you permission to search my car. Uh, that is like the crap, like that. If you didn't know that I was homeschooled, now you know that I was homeschooled. That is the most like homeschool <laughs> answer of all time. And uh, he's like, all right, fine. Your uh, your uh, registration's been expired for more than six weeks. We're going to impound your car. <laughs> Great. Great. So I had to call one of the other bands to like, give me a ride into Boston. It was terrible. Um, so yeah, it's like touring. Touring is bad. Here's the difference. The touring schedule. Now, once you get to the point where you're playing for a thousand people a night and you're like mm-hmm. driving around in a Prevo tour bus and like staying at them, like that's super nice. I got to do one of those tours mm-hmm. and it was literally like, it was, it was the nicest experience I've ever had. Uh, it's still grueling, but it's like grueling in the way that like taking a yacht across the ocean is grueling. Like, oh, we made it. I can't <laughs> believe it. Um, that's nice. The touring to the at the level that I did, it was it's way harder on a day to day basis. It's like sixteen to eighteen hour work days. Um, you know, I'm driving, I'm setting up the merch, I'm setting up the sound system, I'm playing the show, I'm selling the merch, I'm hanging out with people, and you know, whatever until two in the morning. Uh, but that's two to three weeks at a time, and then you come home for a month and do nothing or book a tour or whatever. Um, baseball is a little more grueling in that it's kind of an everyday thing for nine months. And so it's, right. uh, I can equate it to, to pitchers elbows. It's like the chronic workload versus the acute workload. Um, the acute workload is way harder in touring at a lower level. If you're playing for fewer than 200 people a night, touring is way harder on a day-to-day basis, but baseball just doesn't stop. You don't get a, a month off <laughs> most seasons. I got a month off this, this year. Um, yeah, so that can be more exhausting, like down into your bones, over the course of a year. And and I'm sure that like this is only my, uh, if I do any traveling at all this year, it'll be my third year actually traveling a baseball schedule. So I'm sure that at some point, like those years pile up, and you get you get tired on like a, a much more profoundly existential level. I don't know, but all that to say, like no baseball writers uh, that I, travel. I'd say that's accurate. Travel, I, I don't. <laughs> I, I don't, uh, I don't really, yeah. I, like, I try not no to make sympathy. fun of it. Everybody only knows what they know. It is hard, but it's not harder than touring. <laughs> <laughs> like you, I like I, I've been wanting to ask this because yeah, you perform, you're a performer and yeah. people use the word, the, you know, player to describe the folks that we covered, but they're performers too. They, they are yeah. performers. So, did your experience as a performer inform at all? Does it inform at all your coverage of these people who are also performers? Does it shape in any way how you go about it or maybe even your ability to understand some of the stuff they might be going through just because you too were a performer? <clears throat> um, maybe a little. I think there's such different things, right? So like the similarity is that you are both doing something that you care deeply about, that you have made your life's work in public. You are, you're not doing that at a computer screen. Um, I mean, yes, there. and the other thing is that there's a lot of work that goes into it that nobody sees. So for me, like, like I was saying earlier, like you drive to the show, you're setting up the the sound system, you're setting up the merch, you're, and before that you were sitting at home or like booking a tour and promoting a tour and you're in charge of running the Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and you're designing t-shirts and getting those printed up and you're running inventory of all of that. And like, there's, it's a, it's an iceberg where like for an hour a night I get to relax and go out on stage and actually do the thing that I love to do. And then the rest of it is just all the work that it takes to get to that point. Um, there is a similar similarity there with with sports and that there's the, you know, the training, the working out, the watching what you eat, the going to a dietitian, the et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then for three hours a night, you get to go out and do the thing that you love to do and kind of clear your head a little bit. Um, and that's why, like when you, when I see a baseball player, like strike out and they slam their helmet down and they, you know, Bo Jackson breaks his bat over his knee or whatever. I, I used to think like, he's a grown up. like stop, stop acting like a baby. Why are you doing that? And now I realize like, it's because of all the work that went into this moment and you blew it. And you're like, ugh, all that work. Like I know all the work that went into this. It was not just about this one strikeout. 
So there, there are similarities. Where it becomes different is that like what I was doing was sort of cracking open, open my chest cavity and like bleh, exposing my guts to the world. Um, baseball players, most of them don't really have that capacity. It's about being invulnerable. Um, and so really we're all, oh, I don't know. Like, You've never seen Rich Hill pitch. <laughs> America's pitcher. That's a good point. Rich, Rich lives it all, lives, leaves it all out on the line, baby. That is a good point. Yeah. Um, but just, no, I mean, I, I don't know that it really, I, maybe it gives me a better understanding, uh, of, of what they're going through, but I, I don't, I couldn't give you a good example of how it affects the way that I cover it. Beyond beyond this, I do remember when people would interview me for music stuff, um, I could tell when they hadn't prepared their questions in advance and it drove me nuts. And then I hated being paraphrased. Like my words were the only thing I had. Like this is it. Like I, this is what I do is put words together in a specific order for a specific reason. And when you don't, record the conversation you're just taking notes and you write that down in a different order it makes me sound like you and i that's not how i put that sentence together so that drove me nuts like i would insist on the conversation like that was my one diva thing like here's the thing i thank you for covering me i am not in a position to refuse coverage i need it but please just quote me as i say it like please record the conversation um, and that's a courtesy that I extend to the players with the exception of like, if guys, if English is not their first language and they put some words out of order, I'll, you know, fix that. I think that's crappy to do. And like, a couple years ago, Carlos Gomez, who by the way, was a much nicer guy than I had been told before he got to the Rangers. I actually really enjoyed covering Carlos, but his English is, you know, it's good. It's conversational, but it's not, his syntax is sometimes off. And there was a guy that had written a story about him that basically just put those words in exactly the order that he said them. And it kind of made him look stupid, and so mm-hmm. I won't. I won't do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, just just the courtesy of trying trying to prepare questions, or if I don't have a prepared question, don't feel like I have to force it because their time is valuable. And um, and then you know, don't paraphrase, guys. That's all. So I want to ask you about. Uh, something you wrote this spring, and it, it fits into the uh, the category of preparing uh, okay. questions. Uh-oh. This was, I think, uh, by far my favorite thing I read this spring. Um, it was the rank five uh, <laughs> thing you did. Yeah. Uh, can you maybe? I mean, this is like, I, I mean this with with as much of a comp. This may not sound like a compliment, but this idea could suck so bad and it is so well done can you maybe just explain what you're trying to accomplish with the with the rank five type stories and how you go about doing them um yeah so for for those that didn't read it the the basic concept um was that i give uh, i just shove this list i got a notebook a little miniature notebook and i sort of hand it to the player and i go all right rank these five things first like best to worst and it's five completely usually completely unrelated things so just like looking around the room right now i would go like um keyboard keyboards uh pillows um czars uh light bulbs uh the color blue rank those best to worst and players most of the time are very confused which is part of the the joy of it um, is sort of watching them figure out the process. And the the way that it came about is I was really bored. Uh, I was sitting on Wikipedia <laughs> in the middle of spring training. This uh, The first one I did was a couple years ago in 2018. And I was just like extremely bored. It's it, Spring training has, th- I think, three, uh, for me anyway, sort of there are three stages of spring training. There's the initial excitement period where everyone's like, yes, the off season, everything's new, there's hope. We got 65 guys in camp. We're meeting the new people. We're sort of getting their backstories. We're discovering if there's anything, any good stories to tell. Hey, man, what'd you do in the off season? And we're all catching up with our friends. like the first day of school. And like, it's exciting. Uh, And then at the end, there's this like very tense. There's a lot of drama. Like, oh, we've got two roster spots left. Who's going to be the final relief pitcher? Like, who's going to be the last bat on the bench? Such engaging, exciting things like the last bench bat. Um, 
you know, guys are stressed out because they're trying to make the team. There's so much drama. In between those two, between the lighthearted, frivolous beginning and the, like, dark, brooding cloud of, of uh, uh, stress at the end, there's the middle boring part where just nothing is happening. Maybe games have started, but maybe they haven't. And everyone's just like, why is this so freaking long? What are we doing here every day? And me, I'm not a morning person, so I'm like getting up and I'm there at seven in the morning and I just hate my life in the middle of spring training. And so I was just bored, like so bored. And yeah, I'm just on, I'm on Wikipedia and I'm hitting random article. <laughs> like, let's learn about electrical currents. Let's learn about the socioeconomic, uh, you know, uh, problems of Russia in the 1850s. Let's learn about, you know, just dumb. Like some things I was not even smart enough to comprehend what it was trying to teach me. And um, and then I thought, well, if I'm bored, maybe everyone else is bored. Let's get them to rank. The- I really can't tell you. Like that. I know that's a huge leap <laughs> there. It's like there's this... The dark ages of the of how this process started. I really don't know how it crossed my mind to be like, here's what we should do with this boredom and this thing that I'm doing. Get players to rank it. But I, I literally got Adrian Beltre in 2018 to say that he thinks Tupperware is better than Drake. And that was my <laughs> fan. Like, <laughs> that was my crowning uh, achievement as a journalist. I, um, I think my favorite part of this year's edition is when you uh, approached Edison Volquez and said, can I get you to do something extremely dumb? Yeah. And he just replied with, whoa. Yeah. And having, uh, having covered Eddie when he was in Kansas City and knowing him to be just a delightful guy to deal with, I found myself just walking around going, whoa, yeah. for like a week. <laughs> you know, just imagining that scene of just his eyes lighting up and him. Yeah, so you, you know, know exactly. And so it, yeah. Yeah. Well, you you found a. I mean, I think it's really interesting in that uh, it it provides a bit of a window into the personality of players. Yes. That I'm not exactly sure how else you could get them talking about this stuff. Right. Uh, it's re- like it's it's really illuminating. You learn just like a little bit of stuff about every guy in some way. It's, it's a, it's a really interesting exercise. My, my well, favorite I, I'll tell one. you. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. You first. Cause I'm looking it up. Well, I want to get the quote, right? Look, my, one of my favorite things about this and, and it is actually one of my favorite things about, you know, covering a team, like when you're on the beat and you're just around all the time is it, it's remarkable how many times you'll do this. And like, it becomes a group thing. Like, all of a sudden, it's not just one guy that you're talking to. It's a bunch of people, like, kind of chipping in and, like, playing off each other. And I think yeah. that's probably gets to what Andy's point is. You get to know them because that's probably the most comfortable, most natural, like, setting for these guys is they're playing off each other. And, yes. and I think it really comes through, and, it, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, and, and in the first version of this a couple of years ago, it was the, the bullpen of guys that were, like, a lot of fun. So like Tony Barnett, Jake Diekman, um, th- those two guys playing off of each other was a lot of fun. And then th- like Austin Bibbins Dirks is like the nicest guy. Um, that was, th- you're right. I think a lot of just peering into their personality a, l- a little bit. And for me, like having permission to put that out there publicly is also like, th- I-, I don't take that lightly because a lot of these guys, some of them are, fairly private or you just don't get to see how they interact with each other um, outside the clubhouse. My, my favorite one from this year was Corey Kluber, which I was so I, like, I, <laughs> yeah. I don't actually get really nervous doing this stuff anymore, but like it's Kluber's first year with the team. He doesn't know right. that I am prone to do this extremely dumb stuff. <laughs> He's expecting right. me to be a professional. And I just walk up. I'm like, Hey, can uh, shoot? This is like in my mind, like he's the big fish here because he's also like guys that are quiet and kind of private. He got the nickname Klubot for being so emotionless on the mound. And like, yeah, his whole gimmick is that he's the most boring guy on the world. Yeah. And so here I am like, okay, I'm going to ask Corey Kluber to rank. Here's the list. Breaking (laughs) dishes on purpose. Oatmeal. Court jesters. Counting crows, the band, not the activity. And then I thought, okay, number five should be counting crows, the activity, not the band. And, um, and his favorite, 
like he was very thoughtful about it. He smiled a little bit, but not in like this big laughing, like, oh, I get it. It's stupid way. He just sort of quiet smile and looks at it and he goes, <laughs> well, the only two I've done are counting crows or listen to counting crows and eat oatmeal. Uh, I think breaking dishes might be useful or fun at some point. <laughs> Like useful or fun. Yes, it, that could be useful or fun. Yeah. Well, to close out our episode, I wanted to do that with you today. I've come oh, up with no. five. Oh, geez. Yeah, right, no, it'll be good. Let me, I got to okay. find a pen. I'm actually upstairs in my kid's playroom right now. This is my, my de facto podcast uh, cave. Podcast studio. Yeah, let me. Okay. All right. I got it. Here we go. Okay. Number one, the music of Sam Hunt. Okay. Uh, two, mall rats, uh, the infestation of rats in a mall, not the Kevin Smith film. Not the movie. Okay. So, uh, three. I'm putting a space between mall and rats now. All right. Yes. Uh, the Starwood Hotel chain. <laughs> okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Four, Wawa cheesesteaks. Okay. And five, Ricky Nolasco. Ricky Nolasco. Okay. Wow. Um, is this remember some guys that we just dropped into? Like, is this yeah, right? <laughs> the, the show just like changed. Like, what the hell just happened? Okay, now are Ricky Nolasco talking... was the su- Ricky Nolasco was the subject of one of my all time favorite Dylan Hernandez leads. Oh, it was when uh, the the Dodgers had said that Nolasco would start a game in the postseason and not Kershaw on short rest, and then they switched it to Kershaw on short rest. And Dylan's lead was Rick Honeycutt lied. Period. <laughs> Uh, anyway so are we talking like i I need some clarification on on ricky nolasco are we talking a specific era of his career the whole of his career or him as a person just the man yeah uh just whatever comes to mind when you think of ricky nolasco yeah okay well number one is easy um as tends to be the case with these there's there's one that sticks out wawa cheese sticks i'm very pro that's number one Good choice. Um, and then it gets tricky after that. Obviously, I, I'm not a big fan of, you know, rats, especially in a mall. Like, rats that are pets, fine. I'm not going to touch them, but some people like to. Um, <laughs> rats in a mall, you're like, they're trying... That, like, I'm getting visions of, like, an old abandoned mall that the rats now own. There's, like, a, a Rats of Nim situation where they're, like, trying to sell you old Reeboks. I'm not into this. So... <laughs> I think, although, like I was going to put them five, but you know what? Rats never performed a song called Body Like a Back Road. So let's put Sam Hunt wow. five. Sam Hunt five. Oh. <laughs> Mall Rats four. Uh, Starwood Hotel Chain three. Ricky Nolasco two. Wawa Cheese Sticks one. Final answer. All right. It's pretty All solid. Right. Now it's I have to know, look. Andy. Where, where are you on this, Andy? I got to know now. Where are you on this? Uh, I would go. Um, yeah, I'd say Wawa cheesesteaks, uh, Sam Hunt, Starwooding, uh, Ricky Nolasco, <laughs> and then Rats in a Mall. So you're so you like you're a, you're a country music guy. No, I, I I like Sam Hunt. I mean, I know he's like garbage, but I find I like the hooks. Okay. Part of this, I will I will give you a little bit of my... Like, I lived in Nashville for seven years and saw sure. kind of how the sausage was made there. Um, I hate Nashville country more than I hate any other kind of music. <laughs> it is... Because right. what happens is you've got these songwriters that are so desperate to write a hit that, first of all, they stop writing songs that matter to them and they start writing, like, bumper stickers. And, like, here's right. the bumper sticker. Body like a back road. Oh, that's awesome. All right, that's a hit. Now we got to write a verse that leads up to "Body Like a Back Road," and then and they'll and they'll sing the whole or like let's come up with something else like uh, I, I I liked her better before she was mine. Oh oh, that's a hit. And the chorus the chorus will lead out big setup. I liked her better before she was mine. It's terrible, and that's all. They're all writing to this formula, and then there's the really shady part of it, which is like Tim McGraw will come in and go like his team will go oh. We like that song. Um, we're going to cut it. We're going to put it on our record. Today's your lucky day. But we know there are these like federally, this is a federally mandated thing. Like if you write a song 
And last I checked, the, the number was 9.1 cents per copy. So if let's say, Andy, you write a song and I go, that's a hit. I want to put it on my record. And I print out, you know, a thousand records. Then you get 9.1 cents per record that I sell because you wrote that song. Um, which is great. That's how the songwriters are supposed to stay in business. But what happens is somebody like Tim McGraw or a name, I, I use him because I know this happened with him before, um, but everybody kind of does this. A name that's big enough to demand this will go, love that song, but uh, I, hi, Tim. Tim's lawyer here. Hey, uh, he's going to need a co-write on that uh, for him to cut that song. So instead of 9.1 cents per track, you're actually only getting mm. like 4.55 cents. And, uh, Four and a and, half. And mm. you know what? If, I, I get it that you may, if you value your songs, I totally get it. We'll just move on and cut somebody else's song. But uh, if we're going to cut yours, it, it's going to, it's going to take a 50, 50 co-write. So it's shady, <laughs> like super shady. And as a result, like literally that entire Nashville country scene, not only is the music bad, but the sausage gets made in like a disease ridden factory. I, I hate it completely. And it will always get number five on my rank five lists. So Okay, There's so where my nobody asked here my five. Okay, we got the uh, the mall rats are five, law enforcement four, Nashville country <laughs> third, um, Wawa's number two, and obviously the Starwood Hotel chain number Mark one. Mark is a proud, proud Starwood member. Okay, yes, R.I.P. Starwood <laughs> Levi. Thank you so much for coming on, man. So glad. Hey, thanks to have for you. letting me just like this was like a therapy session. So uh, sorry to the <laughs> listeners, but thank you guys for hanging out. This was a good time. Thanks for coming. All right, everybody, you're listening to, or we're listening to, Beyond the Scrum. We'll talk to you guys next week. Mm-hmm.